Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The drought has cut some harvests in the state. Other crops were saved, saved by timely rains. Let's get details on this year's harvest, which, of course, is well underway. Mark Licht is with us. He's the Extension Cropping Systems Specialist with ISU Extension. Mark, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Give us an overview to start with before we dig down onto some of the details of just a broad overview. Where are we with the harvest as we talk at this time mid-October? Yeah, so harvest is well underway. Um, We're looking at more than 50% of the soybeans are already uh, harvested. Corn is, uh, we're probably maybe about a quarter of the way uh, into corn harvest now, um, which is, you know, we're sitting really good. Uh, We've had great weather. um, And, you know, so we're sitting a little bit ahead of where we normally would be, you know, if we think of it like a five-year or 10-year average. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the drought. Um, What is the range of crop conditions we're seeing this harvest due to the drought? Yeah, so um, obviously where where it's been driest up in uh, northwest Iowa, uh, kind of in that Lamar's area, and it, it extends uh, kind of east there, um, that's that's where we're the driest. Uh, it's considered a, a D3 drought there. Um, only two more categories higher than that. Uh, so we uh, we are drier there, and that's where the yields are um, – uh, they've been penalized a lot more there. Um, several reasons, obviously the drought, uh, but we had you know some warmer temperatures uh, in the July time frame during pollination, and you know that portion of the state just does not have much um, groundwater available to it like we would in central Iowa, mm-hmm. um, and so we we really do rely on timely rains and um, any any soil moisture we can get from those early rains uh, in the in the spring. Yeah, let's go on an imaginary walk through one of those fields. What would we see um, here at harvest time? Yeah, so at harvest time, obviously um, the, the those stalks are um, uh, dried down, the leaves are dried down. So you know, as you're walking through it, you're going to kind of hear the rustling of of the leaves as you pass by them, um, and and you're probably you know if you you start to open up those ears. Um, you're going to see what we call tip back. And so instead of having kernels um, that go clear down to the end of the or the tip of the the cob, you know, they're going to have pulled back a little bit. Um, and so that may be an inch, uh, maybe even two inches in some cases. Uh, if we were in some really uh, severe areas um, as far as drought and, and high temperatures during pollination, we may have some uh, missing kernels uh, where we just didn't get good pollination um, occurring. Um, and, and we're actually, you know, as we, we walk through those fields, um, you know, that's where we're going to find some of the driest corn in the state right now, um, just because they, they did reach maturity a little bit earlier, uh, maybe even prematurely because of the dry conditions. Mm-hmm. How much of a loss is there in those worst hit areas? Uh, what can be salvaged? Yeah, so um, the good news, with with the, at least with the drought, is that typically we do get grain production. Um, and I would say because of, you know, genetics and, and some of our management practices, you know, we, we're more resilient now than we would have been if we had these same conditions 20 years ago. But, you know, we're still uh, in some, some of those fields, you know, we 
still could be hearing, you know, yields that are maybe 50% of, you know, what they normally would have been harvesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, take us to the rest of the state and, and work to the areas where crops are in, in the best shape. I understand uh, some timely rains save some crops in the other parts of the state. Yeah, so if if we think about kind of the the best part of the state, you know, now we're looking at uh, basically the northeast quarter of the state. Um, they did get some uh, nice early rains, which helped them, um, but they also, you know, kept getting the timely rains as we got into uh, July and August. And so, as far as corn yields are concerned, um, you, there, there's farmers up in in the northeast uh, and and kind of east central parts of the state that are sitting there saying, "Hey, this looks like one of the best crops that we've had." Mm-hmm. And and that, um, well, the drought has has driven up prices, so they're looking at good commodity prices, perhaps. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so, um, you know, if if we can get it harvested and we don't have any uh, you know, major challenges there, um, we should be looking pretty good um, from a profit you know standpoint in in that you know kind of northeast east central part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and and looking at the weather right now. Um, you know, there's no big weather systems coming through, or at least uh, that we know of. Um, temperatures look to be okay, maybe a little bit cooling. Um, and so, yeah, we should have a, a pretty uh, speedy harvest from here out, too. Yeah, so rains at this point do no good. We want it dry to harvest, right? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, so we do want dry weather. Um, part of that helps us with just drying down that grain so it stores better, so it harvests a little bit easier. Um, the the big thing that we don't want is we don't want any of the big storm systems that come through with uh, either hail or high wind. Um, that that um, really um, slows us down in, in a number of ways because if we get um, stock lodging or if we even have the ears uh, falling off the, the plant, you know, then we just have um, harder times getting it uh, harvested and, and we have grain loss, uh, which is never a good thing. Mm-hmm. I understand uh, farmers this year have been facing some other uh, challenges. Uh, we have inflation for some of the inputs on the farm and those supply chain disruptions. Talk about that. Yeah, so we this really started essentially about a year ago um, with some of our fertilizer prices as they were, those were going up and we we had seen some of that and so uh, a lot of farmers were trying to book ahead as as best they could um, and then as we got into the winter there was even some um, supply chain issues associated with some of the uh, herbicides that we use for uh, weed control uh, I I did not hear of anyone that um, you know so to speak did not have product to apply um, they may have had to change their uh, plans as far as um, you know those fertilizer applications or how they were controlling weeds but um, for the most part we didn't have any you know major issues there um, you know so I guess one of the things that is always good to point out is that yeah we had some of these supply chain issues we had higher you know costs on those but to some extent that's being offset a little bit um, because of the the strong commodity prices that we have right now mm-hmm. so the impact uh, what are you saying about the impact on farm income generally speaking yeah so um yeah just because we have those those um, high um, commodity prices doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be detrimental um, with the the commodity prices and the input costs, right? So there's going to be a little bit of an offset there. Um, but I think by and large, uh, you know, as long as we have, you know, a harvestable crop and and we're maybe not in that extreme northwest <laughs> Iowa area where, yeah. where yields are more depressed, I think farmers are going to be sitting fairly well here at the end of the year. 
Okay. Uh, get, as we start to look toward the future, the end of 2022 into 2023, give us an update on the state of the drought. Um, uh, maybe we need a little bit of a primer on drought, on how we measure drought and, and where we are in terms of soil, soil moisture and other things. Yeah, so whenever we start to talk about uh, drought conditions, um, you know, at the bare minimum, you know, we we talk about abnormally dry areas, um, and and the most recent drought monitor pretty much brought the entire state into at least the most abnormally dry areas, which tells us that we just have very little soil moisture available there, um, and. And as we go through a growing season, normally we do deplete that soil moisture, um, not necessarily always getting us into drought conditions, but, you know, we, we deplete it as those crops are growing and, and uh, you know, filling the kernels, filling the seeds. Um, a lot of times in the fall of the year, you know, uh, typically starting in September, even October, uh, we do get some decent rains. And so that starts to help re- replenish the soil moisture. And then, you know, if we can get normal uh, snowfall through the winter um, and then we get that to, to, you know, melt nice and slowly, then that also helps us, you know, replenish that soil moisture. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, we can we can go into the fall, you know, in drought conditions and then with, you know, normal rainfall, normal, you know, snowfall, we can have um, good soil moisture where it, it, you know, makes it so that we're no, no longer kind of in those drought conditions. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just in the last, you know, couple of years, we just haven't got enough of that snowfall or enough of that rainfall in the spring to be able to help uh, get us clear through the growing season without falling back into drought conditions. Okay. Mark Licht is Extension Cropping Systems Specialist with ISU Extension. Mark, thanks for your expertise. Take care. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now, the story of a three-year-old Urbandale boy who was given too much pain medication in the hospital. His parents say a cyber attack was in part to blame. Um, Michaela Ram is with us. She's written about this story. Healthcare reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hi, Michaela. Hey, Ben. What a disturbing story, especially for, for parents of, of young kids out there. Walk us through... Uh, what what the parents called a real nightmare. Yeah, so earlier this month, um, Kelly took her three-year-old son, Jay, into uh, to have his uh, tonsils removed and ears put into his, uh, tubes put into his ears, relatively normal outpatient procedures. But um, over the weekend following his surgeries, he still wasn't eating or drinking well, so his surgeon recommended that he go into the emergency room. So his parents took him in to Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center, and that's where they found out that a lot of systems were offline at that hospital because of an apparent cyber attack that had really quite affected its operation. Mm -hmm. And so connect the the cyber attack with uh, what was an apparent uh, overdose for this three-year-old. Yes. So as uh, Jay was admitted um, into the children's hospital, and at one point in time, a nurse came to give Jay some pain medication to help him feel better, uh, Tylenol and codeine, which is a type of opioid. Pretty shortly after that, um, his parents say a resident doctor walked in and told him he had been given too much pain medication for his age and size, when in fact he had been given an apparent mega dose, which amounted to five times what was prescribed. Um, And the only explanation that Jay's parents were given was that the mistake happened because the computer systems were down. Kelly, his mother, never 
said that they never really clarified how a system being down could lead to this kind of mistake. Right. But but I guess in your reporting, it was it was clear to people paying attention, in this case, uh, Kelly Parsi, uh, that they were operating without the benefits of some of their computer backup or their computer uh, resources. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she was saying that as they were in the emergency room, providers were working very slowly because they're working without their electronic medical records, other online systems that healthcare staff really rely on. They were using radios to call down to the pharmacy to order things like medication and saline bags. So things are operating at a very different level at the hospital right now. Mm-hmm. I guess the main question, um, how is uh, the little one, three-year-old Jay Parsi now? Jay is doing good. He's back home and finally feeling better after his ordeal. Okay, so what does uh, Mercy One have to say uh, about the, the parents' account? Mercy One declined to comment, citing regulations on protected health information, but they did say that they are committed to providing safe and quality care for all patients, and they did say that there is an advocate team available to speak with families who may have any questions or need any support regarding their care. Mm-hmm. Do we know that this was, uh, what can you tell us about the, the, the cyber attack? Do, do we have any more information on that? Yes. So up until yesterday, officials had been very tight lipped on what exactly happened, other than saying it was an unspecified IT security issue. But after quite a bit of reporting has come out about this, Common Spirit Health, who is the parent company of Mercy One, did confirm that this was a ransomware attack. Uh, Ransomware is a type of malware used used by cyber criminals to hack into a system and encrypt the data and they threaten whoever owns the system to keep that encrypted data until someone pays a ransom. Mm-hmm. Very quickly before we go, tell us how, how common these type of ransomware attacks are uh, toward healthcare organizations. Uh, unfortunately, they're becoming more common. Um, like other industries that are facing more cybersecurity threats, healthcare systems are pretty prime targets because. I, you know, talking with cyber officials, they say that, you know, credit information, your identity is one thing, but health information is something that lasts forever and can be used and has a value on the dark web. Um, So far this year, uh, based on estimations, it's it's thought that at least 15 health systems that operate 120 hospitals nationwide have been hit by ransomware attacks and data including patient health information and payroll information, was stolen in at least 12 of those cases. Mm, Wow. Um, uh, What a story. Michaela Ram, healthcare reporter with the Des Moines Register. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you, Ben. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. And now a note of passing. In honor of a man who has shaped much of the reporting you appreciate here on Iowa Public Radio, Ken Barkas, a longtime Midwest bureau chief for NPR's National Desk, died Tuesday from complications related to throat cancer. He was 67. His NPR career spanned three decades, and Ken brought in countless stories, trained dozens of reporters and editors across the Midwest. He was a revered mentor to many public radio journalists, including our own Clay Masters, who joins me now. Hi, Clay. Hey, Ben. 
let's honor Ken for all of the work that he's done over so much time, especially here in the Midwest. He shaped so many of the reporters, um, our listeners here today, including you. How will you remember him? Well, you know, I was talking to our midday host, Tony Sarabia, before uh, talking to you here this afternoon. And uh, Tony had worked with Ken in Chicago when he was at WBEZ. And Tony said it really quickly, uh, you know, he was a grumpy bear with a soft spot, which I think is a, a, a good representation of what he was like to work with. But, you know, there was a, a report that Melissa Block had in a remembrance of him uh, earlier this week on Morning Edition, and then it aired again during All Things Considered. And it just talked about how much of a fierce advocate he was uh, for coverage outside of Washington, D.C., New York, and Los Angeles. Uh, he fought to stay in his home of Cleveland, a city he was very proud to call home. And he was the first editor at NPR who was not stationed at the at the mothership. And, you know, what I always will remember about him is in my early days in Nebraska, I started in public radio there around 2006. Uh, he would do these like trips where he would kind of go throughout his coverage area, which is, you know, a really large span of space, the Midwest, right? And he would go to these stations and he would just meet with reporters and talk about, you know, what NPR wanted, you know, the stories that that they wanted to tell. And his thought was always, there's no reason that this story shouldn't be coming out of the Midwest. And, and he would play examples of work that other reporters had done. Um, and he just had this way about him. Uh, he, was, he was a bit brash, and edits that I had with him sometimes uh, would stretch on for long periods of time, and I'd be frustrated. But I knew at the end of the day, uh, the story that I was bringing in with him uh, was going to be good because it had the, the Ken Barkis edit attached to it. Yeah, and, and edit, editing is is a tough job, and sometimes you, as an editor, you deliver hard to hear critiques to get the very best out of your reporters. It's not easy, but um, he found a way to do that. Uh, tough but big-hearted, grumpy bear. Is <laughs> yeah. I heard on that on that piece, but but Melissa Block to cut through the BS. He, he yeah. went right to it. Yeah, and and shaped so many different reporters that you hear on the network now, like Eric Westervelt or Sarah McCammon, who used to work here at IPR, and I worked with in in Nebraska as well. Tovia Smith was in that report as well. Um, And, you know, I'll always remember I was intimidated by him for years, and then I finally got uh, a a story, a pitch accepted from him when I was still in Nebraska. And, you know, it was a tough edit. He sent me back out into the field. I needed— the story wasn't done, and he had to tell me to go back. It took extra time for him to bring the story in. And uh, then he fought for it to air because it was something that had been kind of put on the shelf. And so, I mean, that that was Ken. That's who he was. Um, and, you know, kind of circling back, that that's who he was up until the end as well. He was set to retire uh, this year, and his complications with cancer uh, postponed that. And I was talking to our news director, Michael Leland, who was uh, reminding me that our own Kendall Crawford, based in western Iowa, uh, she and Ken brought in a story not too long ago just about uh, rural school districts suffering because of inflation. He was saying to, to Michael that there's no reason this story shouldn't come out of the Midwest. And then that was something that Kendall Crawford had been looking into. He connected the two of them. And I mean, it, it really was uh, shaping 
the network sound by working these stories out of the Midwest. Another another story that I think about with him, too, is just how much he cared about the Midwest. And like the last time I saw him in Iowa was back in 2015. And he called me ahead of time saying like, hey, where are the, the bike trails that I should be going to when I'm in Iowa? You know, <laughs> I'll be in Des Moines. I'm going to bring my bike with me. Michael, when he was the news director in Wisconsin, uh, remembered going on a bike ride with him in Wisconsin. Uh, and he found this like chicken supply store that he was really excited about to buy something and then like strapped to the road bike that he could take back to Cleveland. He'd bring his kayak sometime with yep. him as he was going to these different places. I mean, he was just, he was invested in the Midwest and he was invested in bringing those stories to NPR. And then, you know, he was the first bureau chief. And now I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but there are editors stationed around the country so that NPR is not just, you know, a Washington, D.C., Los Angeles um, news network. Yeah. A a man, you mentioned a couple of them in that NPR remembrance, reminded that he loves to kayak. Uh, He loved to kayak, uh, hike, uh, 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 bike, uh, adopted rescue dogs, and raised chickens (laughs) back in Ohio. I I wonder, Clay, uh, he's definitely a formative had, was a formative voice and person in so many journalists' lives here in the Midwest. Will you still hear his editor's voice in, in shaping future news stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I can remember one time going through an edit with him, and we just kind of stopped, and he was like, what are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> and he he was always saying, you know, Eric Westervelt in that report was saying, you know, why should, should somebody— give a darn in Miami or why should somebody care in Pittsburgh that's listening to a story out of Des Moines? Um, you know, he, his, I'll, I'll continue to hear his barking in my, my head as I'm trying to work through a piece that I'm working on as countless journalists. I mean, it's been amazing to see the amount of people on social media that either work at NPR or work at other member stations that he had, you know, a hand in developing their careers. So, He'll certainly be missed, but his influence, I mean, you'll hear every time you you turn on public radio. Well, uh, thank you for helping us honor uh, Ken Barkas. Clay Masters, IPR Morning Edition host, of course, and uh, reporter, um, uh, honoring a longtime Midwest bureau chief for NPR's national desk, Ken Barkas, who died on Tuesday. Thank you so much, Clay. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, a preview of Iowa Week on Talk of Iowa. Also, we'll meet a writer from the island country of Barbados, currently in residence here in Iowa, and we groove into the weekend. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment with more of this News Buzz edition from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with this Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up in just a moment, we'll meet a writer from Barbados. Uh, she's currently in residence here in Iowa. Then Tony Daner grooves us into the weekend. But first, it's back. <laughs> I say that with joy. Iowa Week is a tradition that went away with the pandemic, but Talk of Iowa is bringing it back next week. All next week, Iowa Week, school is in session. Charity Nebby, of course, host of Talk of Iowa, joins me now. Hi, Charity. Hello, Ben. Give us an overview of uh, next week. So Iowa Week is an opportunity for us to really take a deep dive into a specific subject. And, of course, that is public education. K-12 through public education in Iowa is what we're focusing on next week. And I think right now is the perfect time to really take a good, hard look at what's going on in our public schools. So go into that a little bit. Why now? What's happening in Iowa education that... Uh, you'll be focusing on in, in various ways next week. There are so many reasons. But one <laughs> is that public education is foundational to Iowa. We've always been so proud of our public education system in Iowa. And then recent years, things have been really tough in education. The pandemic made everything so much harder. Sure did. We also, we have a governor who has a very strong agenda for education. She has exerted a lot of control over public schools in a way that is new to the state. We've always been a local control state, but she's changed the rules to have more control over district choices. She's been leading changes in open enrollment, making it easier to open charter schools, and really at the forefront of this drive to use public money to fund vouchers for students to attend private schools. At the same time, we've got these very loud voices calling for change in our public schools. We've had a lot of controversy at school board meetings and people running for school board and people trying to have books removed from school mm. libraries. And okay. There's just a yeah. lot going on. <laughs> you, Plus, you more than convinced I'm not, me, but I'm go not ahead. even yeah. done. I okay. mean, think about the, the teacher and staff shortages that our schools yes. are facing right now. There's yes. so much to talk about, and it, it's a really pivotal moment, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, very hard to narrow down the topics. You've got five shows next week, Monday through Friday. Walk us through those uh, shows so people know what to expect. Yeah, so Monday we're going to take a a bigger picture look. We're going to talk about how we got to this moment, um, philosophy in public education in Iowa through the years, and how our schools are doing right now. Then on Tuesday, we're going to look at this drive toward privatization. Who gets a choice in education? This is something that other states have embraced before us. And so we'll take a look at how that's worked out. On Wednesday, we are going to talk about these voices calling for change. Who is calling the shots in public education right now? And then on Thursday, there are all of these crises in public education. We're going to talk about who's actually running the show, who's in the classroom, who's in the school building 
And how do we get more people in the classroom and the school building? And then on Friday, we're talking to kids because they're who it's all about. Yeah, that's true. Oh, such important conversations will be had next week on Talk of Iowa um, and, and Charity. You'll be hosting all of the shows. And for those who can't tune in live, of course, subscribe to the Talk of Iowa podcast. Uh, Charity, we wish you well. We'll be tuned in uh, listening to these important conversations about how our public education in Iowa has evolved and the challenges it's facing at the moment. Thank you, Charity. Thank you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. They are established writers from some 30 countries around the world, and they are currently taking part in a 10-week residency here in Iowa. International writers coming to Iowa, it has a long tradition going back to the late 1960s. Since that time, over 1,500 writers from more than 150 countries have been in residence at the University of Iowa, part of the University of Iowa's International Writing Program. And uh, as listeners to this program on Fridays will know, we've been getting to know some of the writers currently here in residence. Let's meet Sherry Jones. She is a fiction writer from the island country of Barbados. That's the most easterly of the Caribbean islands. She was a finalist for the UK's 2021 Women's Prize in Fiction for her first novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. She also uh, put out a story collection called The Burning Bush Women and other stories back in 2004. Sherry is an attorney as well in Barbados and joins us in our IPR studio in Iowa City. Sherry, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I understand you have a little passage from your novel to share with us. Before that, I'd like to have you just sort of introduce us to the listeners who may not know you and your work. You are an attorney, as I mentioned. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing. So I'll tell you that I've been an attorney now for just about a quarter of a century, but I've been a writer for much, much longer than that. Um, And generally, prior to this novel, I would have considered myself primarily a writer of short stories. Mm. So this is my first novel, and I'm really, really so grateful and so excited about the response that it's gotten um, internationally, especially um, at home in the Caribbean. Right. And it's been published not only in the UK, uh, but also here in the US, I believe, translated in, into German, perhaps some other languages. So yes, German it, and French. German and French. So mm-hmm. enjoying some international success here. Uh, you, you have a passage of it. Um, share a, a passage, uh, the passage you have prepared, but tell us whatever you need to do to, to set that up. What okay. is this about? Yeah, so so How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House is a story about a young woman called Lala who lives on the beach in Barbados with her husband, Aiden. And Aiden, unfortunately, is a career criminal. Um, when we meet Lala in the novel, at the start of the novel, she's just about to give birth to her first child, a girl. And on the same night that that baby is born, there is a murder of a wealthy Taurus further mm. along the beach. And How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House is really this story of how these two events are connected. The birth of Lala's baby, as well as the murder of, of Peter Whalen, who is this tourist. Um, and it, it examines so many things and, and themes 
um, in the course of this story, including, you know, the other side of paradise. I think for many of the islands in the Caribbean, most people who visit think about the picture postcard perfect um, physical environment. And this shows a, another side of, of the beautiful place that I call home. So I'm just going to read for you from near the beginning of the novel. I'm actually going to read from chapter two. Um, the novel is set in the mid-1980s, one of my favorite decades um, of my life so far. Um, and I'm just going to read. It's from the point of view of Mira Whalen, um, who is the wife of Peter Whalen, who unfortunately has been killed. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that extract for you. 26 July 1984. For the first five days after her husband's murder, Mira Whalen is mute. She cannot speak when the maid says good morning. She cannot tell the swarming policemen to move their booted feet off the white carpet in her bedroom. She cannot say anything when the police insist on showing her photographs of all the robbers they know who were out of jail at the time of Peter Whelan's murder. She can only moan refusals when her mother calls with offers of assistance. Don't come. Don't arrange for the body to be taken back to England just yet. Don't cry. But her voice is not the only thing that leaves her. On each of the five nights since the murder, Mira Whalen has also lost her teeth. Painless though it is, it fills her each time with an unexplainable terror as she dreams it, a terror that remains unabated on waking. It is often an ordinary dream as dreams go, walking the dog, washing the dishes, save that, before she knows it, her two front teeth tumble from her mouth and into her hands every night. In her dream, she is worn by a mental tearing away devoid of physical sensation that nevertheless compels her hands upward until they reach her lips. She parts them slowly and feels the proof plop into her palms. It is always baby teeth, bloodless and tiny, the kind you might leave for the tooth fairy. Her morphian self stares at these miniatures, whiter and more multifaceted than she remembers, and while she stares, the mental rending starts afresh. The central incisors in her palms are elevated, and there is this slow parting of lips and the silent crash of more of the teeth she hasn't owned since she was a mere little girl. Mm. Sherry Jones uh, reading from her debut novel, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. Sherry, you have me hooked. I am a lover. <laughs> I'm a lover of crime fiction. <laughs> and I, I, I'm loving what I'm hearing there. Great. Uh, tell me, uh, how you, you said writing came before law. You are an mm -hmm. attorney in Barbados. Mm -hmm. how, how early do you remember 
loving writing and creating stories? Well, I remember Ben being um, six years old and thinking that writing a novel was filling an exercise book from one cover to the other with a story. And I remember writing in this particular green exercise book that I had at the time and just thinking if I could just get to the back cover, I would have done it. I would have written a novel. Um, So, you know, I wrote poems and stories and hymns and all sorts of things, some of which my parents um, still keep. And I think it wasn't until much, much later, probably around age 20, that it occurred to me that this is something that I could do, you know, A, as my life's work, and B, that I could pursue publication internationally. So... Yeah, it's been a it's been a wonderful, fulfilling journey, even when it didn't seem as if um, success in in the stereotypical um, way might might be mine. It was it just always felt like a labor of love. Sherry, you've been in residence now for a number of weeks with writers from around the world um, here in Iowa. Uh, how are you? What are you getting out of this residency? Oh, wow. I am getting so much more than I I ever expected. Um, First of all, for me, as with any residency, one of the primary benefits is the time and the space to write um, and the supportive community um, of people, of fellow writers, and others who understand that, who understand why writing is important um, and the contribution that, you know, the space to be creative makes to civilization generally. So so there is that. Um, there's really a rich tradition and history. I'm especially happy to be a part of this program and to meet, to have met um, some of the wonderful people that I've met here, both members of faculty, as well as fellow fellow writers. Um, I'm learning a lot about different parts of the world. It's wonderful to put a face to a place. I, I don't, that's the best way I can express it, to be able to talk to writers who share my concerns, who share my interests, but who have a totally different perspective on life and on the world. Um, and to be able to have, you know, conversations. Our conversations have been fascinating um, when we've had them. So there's so many benefits to being a part of this program. And I'm really, really grateful mm. for the opportunity to be here. Learning about uh, from writers from around the world, but lo- yes. also learning about Iowa. But Were you acquainted with Iowa before coming here? I wasn't. I'd never been to Iowa before. And, you know, this has been one of the more beautiful parts of this experience for me. Just the physical landscape I've found very inspiring. And it's very, very different um, to anything that I'd experienced prior to coming here. So, How so? Um, well... First of all, in terms, so we did, for example, a tour of the Dane Farm. Um, the, da- the dairy da- farm. Well, yeah. yeah, we actually toured um, the 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 crop fields. So it was mm-hmm. corn and it was soy. And I learned a lot from that. And physically, that environment was unlike anything I'd ever seen. We do have agriculture, of course, in Barbados and an agricultural industry. Um, but it is it certainly isn't that vast 
um, just in terms of the physical space. So just, you know, just having that tour and being in that space, it was it was really inspiring for me in a in a new way. It was something I hadn't experienced before. And Iowa City feels a lot like Barbados in terms of physical space. I mean, our population in Barbados is about 280,000 people. So it's a very small country. Mm-hmm. Um, and this feels, it has a, a small community feel, but yet still is such a vast space. So it's been, it, it feels, I feel at home here in, in more ways than one, but then it's also very different and very inspiring. Well, Sherry Jones, we wish you all the best in your remaining uh, weeks uh, here and during the residency at the University of Iowa. Thank you for sharing your writing and uh, your thoughts about writing and, and thoughts about Iowa. We appreciate it. You Take care. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you for having me. Sherry Jones is a fiction writer from Barbados, so one of uh, about 30 writers from that many countries from around the world currently in residence at the University of Iowa. And that brings us to the end of this Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. All we have left to do, and it's a big thing, important thing for our Friday News Buzz editions, uh, is to groove into the weekend. Let's do it with Tony Daner of IPR Studio One. Hi, Tony. Hey there, Ben. What do you have for us? Okay, a couple of uh, great new songs. Uh, One from an album that just came out. It's going to be in our library soon. Uh, Can't wait for everybody to hear it. This is the new one from Courtney Marie Andrews. She is a uh, kind of a folky acoustic guitar uh, Americana singer-songwriter. She's put out seven or eight albums out now and also put out her first book of poetry last year. Obviously, we tend towards more of the music side here at Studio One. Uh, this new record is called Loose Future. came out last Friday. Looking, for, looking forward to everyone hearing the whole thing on Studio One tracks. Uh, this is one of the first singles from this new Courtney Marie Andrews album. It's called Thinking on You. Till next time, face to face. 
Thinking on you, Courtney Marie Andrews. I love it, Tony. Thank you so much. What We have time for one more. Okay, a little more uh, shamelessly personal pick this time around. One of my favorite <laughs> bands, The War on Drugs. Uh, every album they've put out the last few years has been in my top five for the year it came out. And they are releasing a deluxe edition of last year's I Don't Live Here Anymore, which was a great record that kind of doubled down on their ripping off of like uh, Bruce Springsteen and kind of late 80s bands. Uh, So it's going to have a couple of new songs, including this one from The War on Drugs. This is Oceans of Darkness. Oceans of Darkness, a new one from The War on Drugs. Good pick. We'll go out with it, Tony. Remind us quickly, how can we enjoy IPR Studio One? Yeah, Studio One tracks, me, Mark, and CeCe Mitchell, seven, uh, six nights a week at 7 o'clock, Monday through Saturday night, and Studio One All Access. That's Saturdays at 1 o'clock, Sunday nights at 7. All right, the oceans of the best new music and old favorites from Aww. IPR Studio One. Thanks so much, Tony. Until next time. Thanks, Ben. River to River today, produced by Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.